Welcome into Hardcore College Football. This is Corey Listoki here. Hope you had a great weekend. This week we're going to be talking about Ray Grecar, the former district attorney in Pennsylvania, who is known for disappearing in 2005 and never being found again, and his possible links to the Jerry Sandusky scandal back when he investigated Jerry Sandusky in 1998. We're also going to be talking about Les Miles and all that LSU has failed to do systematically uh, to protect its athletes and, um, and maybe some people that were also affected outside of the program. And then name, image, and likeness rights, bills being passed left and right across the country. What is going on? What does it mean for the future? We're going to uh, talk about that a little bit as well. Let's get right into the show, everybody. So welcome, welcome on in. My name is Corey Listoki. I'm the host here at Hardcore College Football. I hope you had a good weekend. I really do. It was really crazy. It was a really crazy weekend. So Again, FCS football continues to impress. I think there's been a ton of upsets, but also a lot of teams winning against the spread. So that's nice to see in the spring when we don't usually have FCS football. It's nice that we have football right now. Unfortunately, we're not going to talk much FCS football today because there's just so much to talk about and so much to dive into that I want to sort of wait and talk more about FCS football at a later time because we just have so much to talk about. And before we do, I guess I should just say, hey, if you have a second, make sure to share the podcast with somebody. Uh, a simple retweet goes a long way. People you know, often ask me, how can I help without you know giving you money? Retweeting, sharing, those things are tremendous, and I appreciate it. Go check out my website as well. There's a link in the description. And follow me wherever you have a social media account. Those are just easy things you can do to help the podcast grow. Now, let's get into the college football news while we're here. College football news. Lots to talk about as far as college football news is concerned. I think probably the biggest thing that we need to talk about right away is, of course, what's going on with Les Miles. Uh, A new report showing that Les Miles had an incident with students back in 2012 and 2013. And this continued to be an issue moving forward, even really into the Ed Orjon area. And it doesn't really seem to be necessarily just an Les Miles concern as much as it is an LSU as an athletic program overall concern, specifically in the Title IX realm. Uh, But things are not good. He was basically accused of texting female students, taking them into his condo alone, making them feel uncomfortable, and on at least one occasion, kissing a student and suggesting they go to a hotel room after saying that he could possibly improve or help uh, her career when she graduates. Now, he has said that he did not kiss the student. That is what he's saying. Um, But there's a lot more to it. So let's kind of dive into this here. Uh, student one, the first student that reported some incidents, stayed at Les Miles' condo before uh, for one night, actually suggested by Les Miles' wife at the time. In 2012, was asked to babysit his kids, but then he changed his plans and asked if she wanted to watch a movie with them. Um, after this incident, the athletic director, Joe Oliva, met with him and said, hey, do not interact with student employees one-on-one. Do not put yourself in that position. Do not text them. Uh, do nothing of that sort, and as we'll find out a little bit later, Les Miles continued to do those things. Uh, student number two arranged for a time to meet up outside off campus. Uh, they met up 
and we don't know exactly what happened in the car at the time. Um, but Les Miles apparently told her, hey, put an alias in uh, as his contact, and he'd do the same. Uh, that they could meet up in the future at a condo or in a couple other places. He complimented her appearance, said that she, you know, he was attracted to her, and a lot of other more uncomfortable things. Uh, Les Miles, of course, denying most of this, saying, hey, I was just trying to mentor young women. Um, but, I mean, the reports go on and on. Les Miles saying, or, or accused of saying that he wanted female students who worked in the football facility to be attractive, blonde, fit, um, even referencing you know their boobs. And employees that didn't fit that criteria should work fewer hours and or be terminated. I think it's important to also say here, and this is really true for the a lot of the episode today, that there was a lot of research that went into this. It's a very dense episode. And Sports Illustrated, Penn Live, hell, CNN.com, uh, had a lot of information for me, USA Today. Uh, so a big shout out to them because they've supplied a lot of information that I read um, and, and took into a lot of the work that I did for this episode. Now, the, like I said, the university ordered him to stop hiring student employees to babysit, to seize with being alone with them, and to attend eight one-hour sessions with an attorney and pay for it with his own pocket. Now, in January of 2013, Joe Oliva, in lieu of a new contract extension for Les Miles, had said he's a respected member of the community. We are proud he will lead the LSU football program for a long-term future, which is not what Joe ends up saying a little bit later on, as we'll get to here. Uh, one month later, the student who said she was kissed by Les Miles filed her report. Later on in 2013, LSU and Les Miles took steps to ensure uh, this current report remained secret. Now, in April of 2013, Joe Oliva wrote an email warranting his concern with retaining Les Miles. He recommended a written uh, reprimand, counseling, reduction of bonuses, as well as seriously considering ending his employment. Quote, this issue can or, or can or will have serious impact on our university and athletic department. End quote. Now, per a source uh, via Ross Dellinger, LSU officials explored Miles' contract to fire him with cause, but learned that they'd likely lose that fight and would have to fire him without cause and would owe him approximately $15 million in buyout. In June of 2013, again, Joe Oliva wrote in an email to President F. King Alexander that he recommend they fire less Miles with cause. I specifically told him not to text, call, or be alone with any student workers, and obviously he didn't listen. Um, then LSU decided they hire a, um, a lawyer to do an independent review of the university's overall Title IX reporting process. That was Hush Blackwall, Blackwell, excuse me. And the law firm interviewed over 50 current and former employees. LSU responded to the findings by suspending Deputy Athletic Director Verge Ausbury for 30 days and Senior Athletic Director Miriam Seeger for 21 days and required them both to go through some Title IX training, which seems like a little bit of a slap on the wrist for all the things that I'm about to get to. It should be noticed that, um, or, or, or at least mentioned, that Kansas hired Les Miles in 2018 and claims that they didn't see any red flags at the time and weren't aware of some of these allegations. Um, Les Miles people saying, actually, you know, 
the report was there, and you guys didn't say nothing about it. Um, for for whatever you want to say there, I mean, that's not necessarily a good sign if you're Kansas, because they they haven't had much success on the field. Like, let's just be honest with it, right? Like, they haven't had much success on the field, and then they go out and get less miles. They think it's a good hire, and yet it seems like they maybe didn't do their full research. Uh, I do want to add a couple of things. I just want to read some of this stuff off because, I mean, it's just insane here. Um, some of the stuff that you hear. And and a lot of it continues to be an issue all the way through with Ed Orjan too. And, I mean, let's just start with Darius Geis. I mean, we heard so many things about Darius Geis. Um, obviously, that wasn't all uh, when Ed Orjan was there. But Darius Geis, we've heard so many in situations where he's been – linked with things, told of things. There's a seven-year-old woman thing where he reportedly was trying to, you know, advance on. I mean, there's just so much stuff where at some point you're just like, Darius guys clearly had some issues going on, unfortunately. And um, and, and it's just awful. Like I said, in 2017, he harassed a seven-year-old attendant at the Citrus Bowl um, during a high school championship game. And he was never put through the disciplinary process at all. And it's just, it's just constantly the same stuff with him. And I, I, I could spend a whole podcast probably on Darius Geis and, and some of the things that he has um, been accused of. Um, but like I said, Sports Illustrated had a lot of really good stuff today. Um, this was a USA Today reported that Geis and Davis, which is a wide receiver, included at least nine LSU football players that have been reported to police for sexual misconduct and dating violence since Coach Ed Orjan took over the team four years ago. Now, the details of LSU handled those complaints and the other seven players, two of which played roles on the 2020 National Championship team, remain mostly a secret. That was kind of an excerpt from Sports Illustrated, which, I mean, at this point, it's just baffling, right? I mean, it's just baffling. There's another report by USA Today um, that a member of the LSU diving team told her coach and athletic department administrator in the spring of 2016 that star running back Darius Geis raped her friend after she passed out drunk at a party. Um, and that summer, a student told two athletic administrators that Geis took a partially nude photo of her without her permission and later showed it to the team equipment manager and possibly others, um, which, is just, which is just crazy. And then about Drake Davis, um, Drake Davis, I mean, he had... He had some serious issues, too, including physically abusing his girlfriend, a member of the women's tennis team. Um, they sat down for months with this information, and he continued to assault and strangle his girlfriend before. I mean, it took a while where Davis got kicked off the team, and all these other reports were coming out, and it took for a while for LSU to even finally expel him. And it's just over and over with LSU. And at this point, I'm not sure how LSU's going to get out of this without a lot of trouble. I mean, it's very clear that they failed to act in a lot of these cases. And if it was one specific incident by itself, I think maybe, you know, you can you can maybe get away with something like this. But multiple people with multiple different parts of the athletic department, it's not just the football team. It's It seems that there is an overarching issue here on reporting and helping and keeping athletes and others safe, um, which is sad, which is sad. So... One aspect I want to touch on before we move on to the 
names, image, and likeness is I'm sort of getting a little bit disappointed with college football coaches because at this point, and you can say cancel culture and whatever the case may be, but I feel like it's beginning hard to find great coaches that do the right thing. And we are putting, you know, young Americans, young aspiring student athletes in the in these coaches' hands. And it just seems like time and time again now, and I understand the media will want to report, you know, the bad stuff instead of the good stuff. I get that. The stuff that's going to make, you know, you emotional. But at what point should we expect more from our coaches? These coaches who Les Miles was when he went to Kansas, became the highest paid public employee in Kansas. At what point do we have to say, hey, if you're going to be the highest paid employee in Kansas, we expect more from you. We expect more from our football coaches. And I'm not talking about wins and losses, but about properly and appropriately leading young men um, to become better adults. Because at, at some point now, I'm starting to become disheartened that this is not this is not the case, that we are losing this battle here. And at the end of the day, that is more important than anything else. Now let's talk about image, image and likeness. Now that I've got that ran out of the way, let's kind of flip the script here and talk about possibly paying players. And, you know, the, again, when you hear NIL now, you're probably just thinking about a new possible EA Sports College football game, which is fantastic, and you should check out my YouTube video because I have a lot of wish list videos for that. But name, image, and likeness is really about paying players and how to do it the right way. Um, a lot of people have different opinions on the right way to do it. Some people say, no, the college education is enough on its own. Some people say, no, you need to pay them on top of it. Some people say, no, their little per diem, whatever they get is enough. Whatever the case may be, I think we can agree that players should be able at some degree make money off of themselves. If I want to have a YouTube video and I'm a star quarterback at Colorado, I don't know, I'm just choosing one randomly, I should be able to have a YouTube video and our YouTube channel and make money off of it based off of who I am. Why not? Now, that is obviously debated. But what we know now, we know now is this debate's coming to a close as far as things are, are happening. Things are getting done and things are going to change. Whether that's sooner or later, I don't know, but it's going to happen. I mean, we're getting to the point now where student athletes are going to get more rights. That's just the way it is, especially now with this new administration, and uh, things are going to get done. Now, what's happening, though, and I got a lot of this information from Sports Illustrated, so again, thank you, um, is states don't want to be left behind. They don't want their football teams being left behind in the recruiting realm, and so they're willing to basically formulate their own statewide name, image, and likeness rights bills in order to get something on paper so that these teams can start basically recruiting and, and pitching to these college or these high school recruits. Hey, you come to my school, you have the ability to make yourself some own money, which is pretty crazy. And this is happening everywhere. Um, for example, let's talk about Mississippi first. I mean, they're willing to do whatever they can to get an advantage in sports. I mean, back when the state flag issue was a case in Mississippi, they weren't really going to do much until the SEC said, hey, we're not going to have any SEC championships of any sport in Mississippi until you replace it. Then all of a sudden it had, you know, bipartisan support, or excuse me, partisan support. 
And so it got done. And that's starting to happen now. A lot of legislators don't even agree with name, image, and likeness bills, but they're doing it to give competitive advantages to those universities. Uh, C. Scott Bounds, state representative from uh, Mississippi, said, quote, We don't want to lose a competitive edge in recruiting, both athletically and academically, especially against those in a Southeastern Conference. So they're basically saying, hey, if Alabama starts recruiting and saying, hey, we can offer you, I don't know, an, an ability to make your money on your own and you're Najee Harris, like I'm taking advantage of that. And if I'm from Ole Miss or I'm from Mississippi and I can't do that in Ole Miss or at Mississippi State, but I can do that in Alabama, like I'm going to take advantage of that and I'm not going to stay. And that is what legislators' concerns are. That's what a lot of presidents' and coaches' concerns really are as we head towards this. Now, here's kind of a list of where all these teams are. Florida's NIL law goes into effect on July 1st, which seems like as of right now could be the first one. Um, but Mississippi, Iowa, and New York are also extremely close. And once New York's is signed, we'll actually start right when they sign it. So that one potentially could start before Florida's. Um, Maryland, Alabama also pretty much wrapped up as well as New Mexico. Um, Alabama's won't start until two months after it is signed. So that one might end up being a little bit longer. Uh, and then you have California, Florida, Colorado, Nebraska, New Jersey, and Michigan have already passed their bills. Now, the bill criteria, although there are a lot of them are different, um, they do have a couple of things that are fairly similar. Athletes, name, image, and likeness rights cannot be restricted by schools' conferences. So basically, conferences have no say on how, what players do to make themselves some money. Athletes can hire an agent, which is big time. I mean, you're basically allowing these kids to market themselves. And with help of an agent... They're going to be pretty successful. I think this is an important one to have, too, because you don't want these people, uh, especially 17, 18-year-olds, making a lot of these decisions by themselves. It's, you know, Maybe it's a way, cheap way for agents to make money, but I think it's also the right way to possibly help transition these 17, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds from you know, making 10 bucks an hour, you know, if they're lucky, let alone minimum wage, um, to possibly making thousands, uh, if not tens of thousands of dollars in their first year on campus. Like take Tank Bigsby at Auburn, for example, just when I came off the top of my head, like this guy was a freshman and he would have already made a lot of money um, playing for Auburn in his first year. Also in the criteria, endorsement deals must be disclosed to the school. So the schools must know of all of the endorsement deals, which I think is an important part of it as well. And finally, the last criteria that is fairly common in a lot of these bills are no prospective athletes can strike name, image, and likeness deals as recruiting inducements, which I think, I don't know how you really define this, and I don't really know how you possibly begin to enforce this, because how do you know um, that these deals aren't just being done off the table, and then once they're signed, the book's become clear like if let's just take Oregon for example like if you can you know promise a kid a Nike contract how do you you know get in trouble for something like that when it's almost assumed without even really becoming a, a full thing so that one to me it seems a little bit more difficult but maybe I'm not exactly 100% understanding that one correctly uh, I just want to talk about a couple of bills specifically here South Carolina's long shot bill that they don't think will pass but would be crazy 
includes $5,000 set aside per year for football and basketball players in a trust, which is pretty crazy, pretty cool. I don't think that one's going to pass because that one's pretty standalone. I think this Alabama one's also fairly interesting. It gives athletes the ability to participate in name, image, or likeness or receive $10,000 a year from the school. So, you know, if you're a five-star guy and you can come in and say, hey, I'm, uh, I'm pretty popular, I'm, I'm going to go for the NIL, I'm going to make myself some money. Good for you. But if you're the right, you know, third-string guard, maybe $10,000 is a lot more money than you're ever going to make through endorsements, etc. I don't know how that would work for as far as the college football game goes, as far as a video game, but I think that one's a little bit interesting uh, to at least think about. Maybe that'll be a separate entity on its own. Who knows? Um, but I assuming the school would be, I don't know what the school would prefer, but I guess they would take them make doing NIL instead of paying $700,000 a year for 70 players or, you know, whatever the case may be. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, $700,000 is insane for the revenue of an Alabama or a Penn State. I don't really know how some of the smaller schools would be able to do that, though. Uh, New York's bill requires schools to set aside 15% of their athletic revenue for a wage fund to divide among athletes each year. This one's interesting to me because I, I kind of agree with it. But the issue is football players are going to say, whoa, 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 wait a second. You know, you got, you know, this other sport over here that is losing you money every year. I am bringing in a bunch of money to this department, and I'm relating the same exact cash as a, I don't know, crochet player or croquette player, excuse me. Um, I don't know. The, I, I like the idea of this one, but I just don't see how that one actually becomes a feasible one. Um, Brooke Learman, Maryland House of Delicates, said, quote, we are tangentially working with one another because we are fed up with the NCA's archaic and unjust rules. I thought that was interesting, too, that Republicans and Democrats can barely get together and work on a COVID bill. But yet they have come together in full force, at least at the local uh, state level, where they are working together to get this get this done, which just goes to show, again, where the priority is on things. But whatever. I, I, that being said... That sort of contradicts what is happening at the federal level because federal lawmakers are not as far in the process. I believe there's six different name, image, and likeness bills out there, and the Democrats and Republicans aren't that close with agreeing with each other on them very much. Now, the Supreme Court will hear the Alston versus NCAA court uh, case on March 31st and make a ruling before June and that could dictate whether or not the NCAA has the ability to stop state individual name image and likeness laws as well as a couple of other things so keep an eye on that as we get closer we'll get to keep talking about that a little bit more but it seems that maybe possibly all of what these states are doing is just trying to put pressure on federal lawmakers and or the NCAA to make decisions right like hey, we're going to do this and everything's going to be a mess and you're going to have to make a decision one way or the other because otherwise everyone's going to be playing on different ball fields. The Big 12 commissioner said something I thought was fairly interesting as well, saying it puts schools in their state in a very difficult situation. They'll find themselves violating NCAA rules at the same time complying with state laws. It might end up in court at the end of it, end quote. I thought this was an interesting point because it actually works both ways here, right? 
So you could do the right thing via the state, but also it would be contradicting and violating an NCAA rule, which means the NCAA, I guess in theory, could punish you? I don't really know at this point if the NCAA even has that power because it doesn't seem like they'd use it very much in the right way. But I, I guess theoretically they could. But flip the side of that, and if a you know a coach or a program decides, no, we're going to follow the NCAA rules, states are going to you know cut their funding for those schools. Like, oh, okay, you don't want to listen. You don't want to follow what we outlined through in our bill. Well, we're just going to stop funding all of your stuff until you start listening to us. So sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation here. And I'm very curious to see what would happen um, or what will happen. But, you know, is the NCAA going to eventually come out of this with less credibility? It seems to be the case, right? It just seems like the NCAA, no matter what position they put themselves in, they're going to look bad at the end of the day just because, at least in the court of public opinion, they will be. Uh, final thing I want to say on this is the Uniform Law Commission, ULC, is trying to write a universal bill for all states by the summer. So we'll have to keep an eye on that one as well. A couple other quick hitters here. Uh, UCF's athletic director, Terry Mahasher, is no longer on the college football playoff committee. He has been replaced by Georgia State's athletic director, Charlie Cobb. And so good luck to Char Charlie Cobb there. And the funniest news I have for you today, Kevin Steele. Remember we talked about him, I believe, two weeks ago and how he was with Tennessee. We weren't sure if he was really going to stay with Tennessee. He's only been there for about 50 days. Well, he's not going to stay at Tennessee. He's going to get paid $900,000 for being at Tennessee for 51 days. Final piece of news. I know it was a heavy news cycle today. Uh, but top 247 athletic facilities, 247 in the top 25 list. Number one, Clemson. Number two, Oregon. Number three, Alabama. Number four, Texas A&M. And number five, a little bit surprisingly to some maybe, is South Carolina. So those are your top five. You can go to 247 Sports and find the rest of them as well. Okay, that is all the college football news. We are now entering the meat of the podcast. I know we're already 30 minutes in, but we'll do all right. Ray Greekar. Before I start this, though, I just want to say that eventually I will get into conspiracy parts of this episode. And I want to make sure that when I do that, I don't want to come off insensitive to anything that is actually very important to me as far as making sure we're doing the right things. For example, um, he's officially been ruled dead. Ray Greekar. A lot of that had to do with his family um, and, and giving them some closure. So when we talk about this, you know, have respect and, and really consider the fact that people that, he, you know, loved him, um, unfortunately, have lost him. On top of that, we're talking the Sandusky scandal. We're talking Jerry Sandusky. I tell you what, right now, if someone leaves some sort of pedophilic joke of any kind, of any nature, laughing about anything to do with that, you will be auto-banned from everything on everything that I have. More importantly, I don't like the idea of talking about a conspiracy that leads directly to, you know, the what if situation or the how bad was it situation when it comes to child abuse. Um, it's an awful thing. It's something that as a, not just of a country, but as a society, as a global society, we need to do a better job on. And we we got to do a better job finding these creeps and putting them in jail sooner. 
And that's sort of one of my gripes with this entire story that I'm going to tell you. Finally, I will say this. We are going to be talking um, about one specific incident that happened in 1998 with Jerry Sandusky and a 10 or 11-year-old boy. It's not insanely graphic, but to some it might be considered graphic, and I want to give you a heads up on it now. Um, I might give you another heads up as we get to that point of the story, um, but I want to give you that heads up now just so you're aware of the situation. I will say, though, as far as educational purposes, I think it's important for some people to listen to this and realize that there are those creeps out there and that it is not some fantasy world in a different dimension, though these are, you know, in our country um, that we thought were, you know, people we could trust in programs, in you know, charities where we thought they were doing good and they weren't. And it's important, I think, that the story, you know, underlines that aspect of it, that the people that we thought were good aren't always good. With that being said, let's get into the story. Ray Grecar. Who was he? He was a guy from Ohio. He went to Dayton University. Um, he came to Penn State because his wife got a job at Penn State. Um, he, he just was going to stay at home. He had, a, he had a daughter at the time who still has that daughter, but had a daughter. He was like, I'm just going to stay home, but decided to become the assistant center county district attorney around the 1980s. Um, his boss at the time was like, hey, dude, we got, you know, we need some experience. We're taking you. So um, wasn't too far from Cleveland before moving to Penn State and State College, Pennsylvania. Uh, he was then working for the center county district attorney office, which I believe at that time and obviously is now in Belfont. And if you're not familiar with Pennsylvania geography, Belfont is literally about 20 minutes uh, from State College. So not too far away at all in any a aspect of that. Um, it's just a little bit, I guess you could say, north of State College towards 80. Um, and it's not that too far from 80, I-80. Um, that being said, let's... Kind of just want you to understand that aspect of it. That it is close to Penn State. It's, so just keep that in mind as well. Now, he ended up being the Center County District Attorney for a very long time. Uh, he was reelected four times in 1989, 1993, 1997, and 2001. So he has lots of experience, and he's done a lot of things at this point. Um, that are, are quite impressive. He was considered one of the top prosecutors in Center County for 20 years. They want to be tough, but a fair prosecutor. A New York Times article I read said that, quote, others who knew and worked with Grecar say he was meticulous, independent, and tough-minded prosecutor who was unbowed by Penn State, its football program, and political pressure in general, end quote. So I think that's an important kind of context to have here. And remember, guys, whenever I talk history here, I think context is so important, right? Because it's so easy in these situations to say, oh, yeah, it's not that hard of a concept. Like, he was definitely pressured. He was definitely just trying to, you know, save face of the Penn State program. And, and that's the end of it. I think it's important to understand that he, at least from what his friends say and his colleagues say and everything I can find, Everyone says this guy is fair, he does it the right way, and you know, he has a good resume as far as that being true. I mean, the, everything I find is the case like that. So, just keep that in mind because 
it's easy at some point to say, oh, you know what, he just was a scumbag, when literally nobody says he's a scumbag. In fact, I mean, he his one colleague gets in a really bad car accident. I believe he broke his back. He went every single day to the hospital and read, you know, books and things to him after he was done with work every single day. And there's just countless stories over and over about this. Now, one thing um, that I do want to mention here is everyone says he's a quiet kind of private guy. This guy does not go around gloating about his business. Um, I don't want to say he's a flirt, but he does find a way to have multiple, you know, wives, a girlfriend, maybe a possible couple other relationships, but otherwise is super private with his life. I, I think it was difficult uh, for his wife of a long time, who obviously was the mother of his child, um, to really have fire in the romance from what I've seen. Um, but for a lot of it, you know, this guy seemed to be, you know, a top-notch guy who did things for the most part the right way. I mean, he, he prosecuted Penn State athletes who got in trouble off the field. You know, he prosecuted a woman who shot and killed a Penn State student. And hell, he may have even prosecuted a suspected serial killer who's dropping bodies off of I-80. So this guy has done some pretty remarkable, awesome things. And yet, when we get to the, you know, the specific case of the Jerry Sandusky case, it seems pretty clear that it didn't. Things don't add up just exactly right from the experience that he had uh, for this to kind of go down the way it does. And with that being said, we are now going to talk about that story. So again, if you, you know, I'm going to consider this episode explicit. So keep that in mind here. Um, but I want you to understand that I think it's important that we talk about the story because, you know, this stuff, this specific incident happened in 1998. That's more than 20 years ago at this point. I mean, this is true history that we're talking about. And I think it's important that we remind ourselves um, that there are not only just bad people out here and there are good people that need to be recognized and for, for fighting these bad people. Uh, but also remember that the world is not perfect and that there are these creeps out here. So 1998, that is where we are. And basically, there's an incident with an 11-year-old boy. And at some point here, Greek car is going to get handed some interviews, some possible conversations that police overheard with Sandusky and a mother, and he's going to have to make a decision. Let's give you the timeline of the incident that I'm talking about. On May 4th, 1998, in the later morning, Penn State Detective Ron Scheffler received a phone call from an 11-year-old boy's mother and saying that her son the day before had returned home around 9 p.m., spent two hours with Jerry Sandusky, who at the time had already formed his charity, the Second Mile, who basically tried to help troubled young men. Uh, Sandusky and his wife were unable to have children, and so they ended up adopting a bunch of children, and also this society, this club, this program was designed to help young people as well, which just makes it even creepier and even more and more disgusting. Regardless, so Sandusky is with this child for about two hours. According to her, Sandusky took her son to the Lausch building, uh, in the football program, in the gym to work out. Um, but the boy returned home with wet hair, and that Sandusky had possibly given him a bear hug in the shower while they were both naked. 
Now, Schreffler told the mother to bring her son into the police station once he heard this. It's like, okay, here we go. What the hell is going on here? Now, it's important to remember in 1998, Jerry Sandusky is still the defensive coordinator at Penn State. He is not yet retired, so keep that in mind as well. So 30 minutes later or so, Schreffler comes in interviews and records the boy with the mother's approval. The boy said that Sandusky and him, again, we're getting into the more explicit stuff here, um, wrestled in the football locker room for about five minutes before working out. Then they worked out. And then Sandusky said, hey, I'm going to take a shower. And that's what the boy wanted to as well. The boy, you know, had worked out and was sweaty and wanted to, but it was like, hey, I want to be in a separate shower. Sandusky said, well, there's not really separate showers, but there's four and, you know, um, it is what it is. And we're going to get into more of it. But basically the boy said, okay, you know, whatever. They shower. During the shower, Sandusky came up from behind him, grabbed him um, sort of in a bear hug way, made some growling noises, even laughed. And then after the incident, drove the boy home. And that was sort of the end of it. The boy at this point clearly says at this point that he felt uncomfortable. Now, at 12.55 p.m., Schreffler spoke to John Miller, a case officer for Center County Children and Youth Services, about the case. Miller said he would review it. He called back a little bit later and said, hey, yeah, we need to meet later today and talk about this. I'll meet you at the police station. Um, before they met, though, Schreffler reviewed the incident with Assistant Director Attorney Karen Arnold, who Assistant Director, uh, District Attorney, excuse me, was working with Ray at the time. So Ray Greekar's assistant has already been notified of this incident by 4 p.m. And she recommends, hey, everyone that is involved needs to be interviewed ASAP. 8 o'clock, Schreffler and Miller interviewed the boy and recorded it again. The boy said he'd been to Penn State twice with Jerry Sandusky, whom he met through the program Second Mile. The boy again explained the situation but could not remember the exact uh, time it happened. 9.30, they interviewed him again, which is number three in the same day. And again, the boy mentioned that he was hugged by Sandusky, told him he had soap in his hair, lifted him by his legs towards the shower head to rinse off his head. Um, Originally, the boy said when they got into the showers that he took the furthest one away from Sandusky, but Sandusky actually moved to a closer shower to be closer to the boy. So again, keep that in mind that this just this seems disgusting, and they have these they have these accounts here at the time in these reports. May sixth, nineteen ninety eight, Sandusky leaves a message on the boy's family phone answering machine asking if he wants to again work out. And that's only two days later. May 7th, Schreffler and his supervisor met at the boys' home to record the answering machine message. It also showed two more messages from Sandusky left two hours apart on the afternoon of May 3rd. So Jerry Sandusky's, you know, calling this family and this kid a lot, right? I mean, at this point, it's clear that Jerry Sandusky wants to be around this boy more, which is, again, so disgusting. On May 8th, 1998... 12.30 p.m., Schreffler receives um, Alicia Chambers' report of the May 4th interview of the boy. Now, Chambers basically says, dude, Sandusky's a pedophile. Like, this is some messed up stuff going on here. 
Now, at 2 p.m. that day, um, the victim is supposed to meet and have a psych appointment with John Cisak. Now, on May 9th, Cisak, the consultant with Center County Children and Youth Services, calls Schreffler and says, hey, the boy's story is consistent, but there are a couple gray areas and that Sussex would uh, would like to interview. I did the interview in the cold, I should say, without any of the background information, et cetera. Did not read Chambers' report, who said that, hey, this this guy's a pedophile. And he said he never heard of a 52-year-old man becoming a pedophile, but it was possible. Um, he couldn't find any indication of child abuse. Um, the boy had told, had not told, I repeat, not told Sussex that Sandusky had kissed him on the head and said he loved him. However, the boy did tell Sesek that Sandusky tickled him. So Sesek concluded that Sandusky did not fit the profile of a pedophile at this point, which is important to remember here, that the Center County Children and Youth Services psychologist is basically saying, based off his report, that Sandusky is not a pedophile. 4.30, Schreffler called the boy's mom, who said that Sandusky had just called 10 minutes earlier, leaving a message for the boy to call him. The mother had called Sandusky earlier that day, though, and said, hey, I was going to be out of town with my family. Like, There's no reason for him to call. He knew that I wasn't going to be in town. Anyway, again, the, the victim's mother called Schreffler and says, hey, I finally spoke with Sesek, the psychologist, about Sandusky calling our home. And he says that it's customary for the second mile to call weekly to check in on kids. But the victim's mother is like, whoa, 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 wait a second. That's some baloney. That can't be possibly true because I have a daughter who's in the second mile and she's not receiving any sort of calls like this all the time. She's not getting weekly check-ins. She's not calling, getting called multiple times by you know her or whatever mentor or whatever they had at the time. You know, this is definitely weird. And... Sussex said, oh, yeah, you know what? Let's not let Sandusky see your child right now. Um, but there's some gray areas that he couldn't discuss with her at the time, which frustrates me. Two days later, May 13th, Schreffler contacted DA Ray Grecar about Sandusky's ongoing calls. Sandusky had called on May 12th asking if a uh, if he could pick up the boy, Schreffler and the mother agreed at the time that hey he's not going with Sandusky. However, they were gonna go there and basically set up a trap, set up a thing to basically listen and record the conversation that Sandusky would have. So on three forty, Schreffler and Detective Ralph Ralston arrived at the boy's apartment ahead of Sandusky and hid waiting for Sandusky's arrival. So they're in there. I like this I have never heard anything like this before. Like I you know obviously am very aware of the Sandusky scandal and things, but I had not heard this stuff. Like they are literally waiting in the other room recording, waiting for Jerry Sandusky to come in and, and seeing if they can get something on film. And from what I understand they probably did. On Sandusky's arrival, the mother asked Sandusky straight up, yo, about that May 3rd incident, about the shower incident. What specifically went on here? And he didn't really have much to say. He said, hey, they worked out, and he asked if the boy had said anything. The mother said her son's hair was wet. Sandusky didn't say anything about that. She asked if he took a shower and if her son took a shower. He said, yes, they both, you know, he took a shower, her son took a shower. 
a shower. Um, and then she goes on and says she didn't want Sandusky calling anymore. Said that, you know, Sandusky said, hey, I may have worked him too hard. I'm sorry. She asked if anything happened again. And he said, I don't think so. He offered to talk to the boy, but the mother declined, saying that wasn't a good idea. And again, he was asked about it. And Sandusky said, I was wrong. I wish I could get forgiveness from you. I know I won't get it from you. I wish I were dead, end quote. Now, I am not a legal counsel of any sign. I'm not a lawyer. But from what I could find, this at this point seems like a possible, basically, admitting of guilt. If you were in a, you know, a courtroom basically saying, hey, I'm sorry, and asking for forgiveness and wishing he was dead, is a possible, in some situations, enough to say, yeah, that this is him being guilty. But, but that, you know, again, I'm not, you know, someone who's as a, you know, their bar can tell me if that's true or not. But that's what I've at least read, that right there, boom, that's big time. That he's basically, you know, said all that stuff. Now, I don't know, this next part, I don't know if it happened in this interview or this conversation with the mother or it happened when he was interviewed by the detectives. But at some point, Jerry Sandusky also mentions that he is not sure whether or not his, you know, genitalia touched or made contact with the young boy, which you're bear hugging a young naked man. You know, a young naked man is bear hugging a little boy. I don't really know how much more information you really need to know that that's a was completely and utterly messed up and inappropriate, but also probably a hundred percent illegal. I don't know what is needed for sexual abuse, but I'm pretty sure bear hugging a little boy naked in the shower is enough to put him behind bars in my opinion. But again, I don't know. And it just seems weird as we'll continue down this road. So that's what they got from that conversation. And again, that was May 13th. On June 1st, 1998, Treffler and Jerry Lauro, a State Department of Public Welfare investigator, interviewed Jerry Sandusky at the last building. Sandusky said he hugged the boy in the shower, but it wasn't sexual. He also said he showered with other boys. He came out distraught and upset, and he said he'd used poor judgment. Again, sort of admitting the guilt. Schreffler and Laura agreed there was no sexual assault that actually happened, though. Uh, Schreffler told Sandusky to stop showering with children. Sandusky said he wouldn't do it anymore. Obviously, we know that's not the case. And here's the saddest part. There was another boy who reported similar treatments, but again, all of a sudden, District Attorney Ray Grecar decides the case warrants no criminal charges. Eventually, you know the story and the rest of it. 2000, there's another huge incident. 2001, there's another incident. Those were not reported to the police. They were dealt with internally, for better or worse. And it would be another basically decade before another information got out and blew the whole thing up. Eventually, Jerry Sandusky was convicted of 45 out of the 48 counts of sexual abuse with about 10 to 11 boys. But the story is not over quite yet. So literally after this interview where Sandusky admits to being naked with little boys showering on June 1st, a couple days later, Greek car ends the negotiation, ends the conversation, ends the entire case saying, hey, there's not enough evidence. You have him on mic 
saying that, yes, I was with your boy naked in the shower. He admitted it himself. He also said he felt bad about the whole thing and that he felt guilty, basically. I think that's enough at least to pursue an investigation. And yet a month, um, not even a month, Ray Grecar has closed the investigation and it's done. Now, here's where things start to get interesting. Because on October 13th, 1998, Treffler, Ralston, again, that police officer that went to the house of the, the little boy before Sandusky showed up, Salone, who was a friend of Grecar and, and the deputy of the district attorney's office, all went to the Penn State football building. Grecar had his little recording device with broken English said, hey, we got to record, you know, we're going to write all this up and whatever happens from it, we're going to write up, but we never get anything else. That's it. That's all we get. Sloan couldn't remember exactly why Schreffler and company wanted to go to the football building and whether or not that was related to the, the next case or not. Um, and then that's the end of it. Or, or so you think. Um, Robert Boehner, district attorney of Montour County, said that Grecar didn't pursue charges against Jerry Sandusky because, quote, if you're going to target someone, you really work very hard to make sure to have a case because if you don't, you could end up ruining someone's reputation and livelihood. If he had evidence, Ray would have not concerned himself with the person who the person was. Basically saying it doesn't matter if it was the president or a, you know, a basic drug dealer, Ray Grecar was going to do the right thing regardless, which is what I want to believe. I want to believe people did the right thing and he doesn't have enough evidence. But we know the evidence that he did have. We have an admitting of guilt that he showered, Jerry Sandusky showered naked with a boy. He grabbed him from behind. His genitals may have touched an 11-year-old boy, and yet nothing is done. Nothing is done from this which is just disgusting and, and sort of enraging. And it's just so frustrating. But here's where it gets even weirder. On April 16th, 2005, Ray Grecar, at this point, is 59 years old. He's eight months away from retiring. He's not running for a re-election. Uh, was originally going to be home for lunch. Um, but it calls his girlfriend at 11.30, Patty Fornicola, and says, hey, I'm going to go for a drive in the, Brush, in the Brush Valley on Route 192, which is insane to me because I have rode on 192. And if you're trying to get to Lewisburg, I mean, it's a, you know, it might be the fastest way, but it can also be uh, the more difficult way. I've also thought about this multiple times now, and I don't know why from Belfont you would take that route um, because you can – you can basically take a lot of different other ways to get there. Hell, from Belfont, you could almost even take 80 if you wanted to um, and, and get there as well. But maybe he just wanted the nice scenic drive. You know, at this point, Grecar is, is basically done. He's a happy man. He's, you know, prosecuted a lot of different people, a lot of different crimes, and he's set to retire pretty shortly. And then things kind of get weird. Because 12 hours later, um, Patty Fornicola still hasn't seen Ray Grecar and reports him officially missing. Now, because he's with a district attorney, they don't wait 48 hours before starting the investigation. They start it immediately. Well, they eventually find Ray Grecar's Mini Cooper in a parking lot in Lewisburg about 50, 55 miles or so away from his home in Belfont outside of a store named Street Stops, which was an antique store he often liked to visit, which isn't insane at this point. 
except it gets weirder and it gets weirder extremely fast and it almost gives me kind of goosebumps because his car smells like cigarette smoke there's ash in the passenger side not only did he not smoke he didn't even like the smell of smoke in his car so it's very unlikely that he'd let very many people smoke in his car and you know he didn't do so himself so clearly somebody was possibly with him now his work phone was turned off and was in the car his wallet was missing his computer was missing which again is weird because if you know for whatever reason he calls off for work he doesn't go into work today why would he bring his com work computer with him why would you even bring it with you and it's missing but it gets even more confusing and it gets even more weird because they they looked everywhere for mr ray Greekar and they still haven't found him they eventually years later found his laptop in the susquehanna river but it didn't have its hard drive. I believe it was like uh, sort of like a tablet, I believe. Um, it didn't have its hard drive and based off of the computer, they knew that this hard drive had to be disassembled by you know a person in order for the hard drive not to be with it. So the hard drive was specifically removed on purpose. The hard drive was then found not too far from where the TV was a couple months later on from there. They tried everything they do, you know, they could to try to get the information back, but it was rendered useless. Then it wasn't until a couple of years later that an investigation of his house computer found that the internet searches were made on how to wreck a hard drive and water damage to a notebook computer. Again, Greekar was setting to retire at the end of the year, so possibly he just wanted to get rid of a laptop or information you know, regarding other cases so he didn't get in trouble. That's a possible scenario, but it just gets weirder and weirder and weirder because his bank accounts were never touched. There were some microtransactions that led up to about $10,000 over the course of a couple of years. But people said, no, that's not enough to really just get away on enough on your own. And, it, and again, it just it gets more and more strange because one aspect of this that you have to really consider here is the 1998 Jerry Sandusky case. Now there's two sides of the stone saying, oh, there's not enough information where it's related to it and his disappearance is related to it. In fact, Cyril Wecht, a forensic pathologist, considered writing a book about Greekar and the Sandusky case, but abandoned the book when it became clear there wasn't enough evidence. But, but maybe there's not enough evidence because all that evidence is now gone. And why am I saying this? Well, when they went through this and started looking for evidence on why Ray Greekar disappeared, they couldn't find any information regarding the 1998 Jerry Sandusky investigation. Not a single piece of paper was written about it from Ray Greekar, which is insane because Jerry Sandusky at the time, very popular defensive coordinator, one of the best in the country, and also on top of all his philanthropy work at the time, is a big deal. And this would have been a high-profile case. And the fact that nobody was able to find any information on any sort of work regarding this case by Ray Greekar is insane to me. Absolutely insane. And they couldn't find any of it. Maybe that was what was on a laptop. Maybe that's where the information went, but it was not there. Now, there's a couple different things that we need to talk about at this point. And it's really three possible situations. The first 
possible situation is suicide. Now, a lot of people that worked with Ray Greekar said, no, that's not the case. Like, this guy had a chance to retire soon. It just doesn't make actual sense here. The Susquehanna River was super shallow. He could have jumped off, not even killed himself, and walked to shore. Um, even if he did die, there's possible rapids that could, you know, disintegrate a body or maybe even the dam, but it was very unlikely from where he was that he was going to get that far down there. The river just wasn't really that strong at the time. But maybe one possible bonus to this, or maybe reason why this happened, that maybe depression did come out of nowhere, was that his brother jumped and committed suicide, unfortunately, into a river as well. But it just doesn't make a lot of sense with what the information we have and the life that they wanted to live that he would do this so close to retirement. Now, the second one is going rogue, going witness protection, you know, just going off the grid or something like that. But there's no electronic footprint. I mean, not a credit card used, you know, not a bunch of money spent before leaving, nothing like that. So it seems very little to be, at the very least, pre motivated, preempted in any capacity. It seems to be a spur of the moment, whether it's a murder, a suicide, or going road witness protection, whatever the case may be. Now, murder is the third option. And I think this is the most interesting one because people don't really know what to suspect of this, right? Because he's a district attorney. If you're going to murder a district attorney, it's going to get national attention. And so far, it still has. But before we go right to the Sandusky possibility, we could also say that um, it could be someone else, another criminal. You know, he was prosecuting a lot of people. It could have been gang-related. It could have been a lot of different things. My thing is, and I explained this one to me, is if he had randomly decided not even at the beginning of that day to go to Lewisburg and it was kind of a last-minute effort, you know, why... Or how would someone be prepared for something like that as far as murder is concerned if it was sort of a last-second thing to do it? Um, so just keep that sort of in mind. Now, the one aspect of this that we need to mention at least briefly here is there was a possible mysterious woman that he may have gone to see, um, you know, a dark-haired woman there's been reports that it was a former reporter there, although that's been debunked, um, that maybe that she was one that smoked cigarettes, whatever the case may be. Um, we at least need to mention her because there are a lot of signs point that maybe that, you know, that was a murderer who was smoking or whatever. Um, one other aspect is someone in the office said that they saw Ray Greekar around the office around 3 o'clock, yet that story was never proven anymore. So there's a lot of like weird bits and pieces to this story that nobody really knows. Um, one, uh, one last part about that witness protection or going rogue thing. I mean, they sent Interpol investigations to Slovenia where Grikar spoke some of the for, you know the foreign language there and popular battlefields where he wanted to visit. So they covered a lot of ground here to try to find different aspects of it. Um, that, and it covered a lot of things, and, and they have done a lot of research. They've done a lot of technological things to try to find things, um, new face recognition things, all sorts of things. There was a homeless guy in Utah who they thought that it might be, but the fingerprints didn't match. I mean, they've done a bunch of different things to try to figure out who this is. Um, but my thing comes back to this. 
the mister the you know the disappearance of Ray Gricar is obviously a conspiracy theory at this point. Believe what you want to believe. I'm not here to talk specifically call you know conspiracy theories. I'm more interested in the justice of these victims um, that put a lot of faith into a football coach and put a lot of faith into the law getting it right. And it frustrates me because I don't understand, and maybe somebody can you know, help me along the way here, that this conspiracy is really more focused around why Jerry Sandusky wasn't convicted or at least charged with crime at the time. Because here's the thing, and here's the saddest part about this is, yes, there was some reports of sexual abuse by Jerry Sandusky, I believe as early as 1994, excuse me. But a lot of it happens in 2000 and 2001. And who knows how long or how much it went on. But in 1998, there was an opportunity to get a creep off the streets, to put him behind bars, and we missed that opportunity. And it just seems like there was enough there to prosecute him that day. There was enough there to try him, and we missed that opportunity. And that is a true conspiracy. What else did he want? Because some people say it was an airtight case. You had possible the admission of guilt, and I'm just wondering how or what else did they want at the time because it seemed pretty clear. Even if he was found innocent, it would have been popular. It would have been popular. It would have been known to a lot of people. It would have saved a lot of people a lot of hard problems because they would have been more aware in 2000 and 2001. And those accounts in 2000 and 2001 were never police reports. There was never another investigation. It never got to the police in 2000 and 2001. If somebody in 2000 or 2001 reports it to the police and they have all that other information there and it's the second time this has happened, you would think people would be way more aware of it and they would have more information to try the guy. And so it's just frustrating on top of it. And then you just throw in all the weird stuff that there was no notes left, but yet a hard drive was gone. And clearly somebody researched and did stuff at the house on how you would possibly get rid of a hard drive. And it just makes you kind of shake your head and wonder what if or what possibly happened here? What happened to Ray Greekar? Where is he? And where is all the information he had on Jerry Sandusky? And why was he able, after an interview with Sandusky a day later or a couple days later, close it and say there's not enough information? And why did he meet at the Penn State football building in October and yet not fill out or finish his recording about what the hell went on there. I mean, it is, it's an interesting situation. It's an interesting conspiracy. And I would love to hear your guys' take on it. So if you want to talk more about this, please join my Discord. It's free. There's a link everywhere. Um, and let's talk about it because I, I do love conspiracies. I'm frustrated with this one because of how it relates to child abuse in the process on which we go to expose these creeps, but also, of course, 
doing the right thing and making sure that pro you know we it's it's such a good tie-in to what we see with Les Miles in LSU right now, right? Because it's not obviously child abuse in Les Miles and LSU's case, but it's still about protecting people and going about things the right way and possibly fixing a systematic problem um, if it's there. And yet it doesn't seem like it's getting any better, you know, two decades later. And it's something we need to get better on. So I would love to hear your, you know, your opinion um, and what you think, but that's all I have today, guys. It's It was a lot of research. Like I said, New York Times, USA Today, Sports Illustrated, Penn Live. A lot of people went in. Um, a couple podcasts I even listened to as well. Uh, Cold Case Junkies, I believe it was, was one I listened to. So there's a lot of research involved. So if you have one minute of time, go to Apple Podcasts and please drop a five-star review. I'll read it on the show. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. A lot more great stuff coming down the pipeline, so make sure to check out the website. Make sure to subscribe. Make sure to follow us on social media, and I will talk to you later. Have a great, fantastic week, everybody.